Chapter Three of the Ivory Child by H. Rider Haggard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, Miss Holmes. Two and a half hours passed by, most of which time I spent lying down to rest and get rid of a headache caused by the continual rapid firing and the roar of the gale, or both. Also in rubbing my shoulder with ointment, for it was sore from the recoil of the guns. Then Scroop appeared, as, being unable to find my way about the long passages of that great old castle, I had asked him to do, and we descended together to the large drawing-room. It was a splendid apartment, only used upon state occasions, lighted, I should think, with at least two or three hundred wax candles, which threw a soft glow over the panelled and pictured walls, the priceless antique furniture, and the bejewelled ladies who were gathered there. To my mind there never was, and never will be, any artificial light to equal that of wax candles in sufficient quantity. The company was large. I think thirty sat down to dinner that night, which was given to introduce Lord Ragnall's future wife to the neighbourhood, whereof she was destined to be the leader. Miss Manners, who was looking very happy and charming in her jewels and fine clothes, joined us at once and informed Scroop that she was just coming— the maid in the cloak-room had told her so. "'Is she?' replied Scroope indifferently. "'Well, so long as you have come, I don't care about any one else.' Then he told her she was looking beautiful, and stared at her with such affection that I fell back a step or two, and contemplated a picture of Judith vigorously engaged in cutting off the head of the Holofernus. Presently the large door at the end of the room was thrown open, and the immaculate savage, who was acting as a kind of master of ceremonies, announced in a well-bred but penetrating tones, "'Lady Longden and the Honourable Miss Holmes!' I stared like everybody else, but for a while her ladyship filled my eye. She was an ample and, to my mind, rather awful-looking person, clad in black satin—she was a widow—and very large diamonds. Her hair was white, her nose was hooked, her dark eyes were penetrating, and she had a bad cold in her head. That was all I found time to notice about her, for suddenly her daughter came into my line of vision. Truly, she was a lovely girl, or rather young woman, for she must have been two or three-and-twenty. Not very tall, her proportions were rounded and exquisite, and her movements of grace as those of a doe. Altogether she was doe-like, especially in the fineness of her lines and her large and liquid eyes. She was a dark beauty, with rich brown waving hair, a clear olive complexion, a perfectly shaped mouth, and very red lips. To me she looked more Italian or Spanish than Anglo-Saxon, and I believe that, as a matter of fact, she had some southern blood in her on her father's side. She wore a dress of soft rose colour, and her only ornaments were a string of pearls and a single red camellia. I could see but one blemish, if it were a blemish, in her perfect person— and that was a curious white mark upon her breast, which in its shape exactly resembled the crescent moon. The face, however, impressed me with other than its physical qualities. It was bright, intelligent, sympathetic, and, just now, happy. But I thought it more, I thought it mystical. Something that her mother said to her, probably about her dress, caused her smile to vanish for a moment— and then, from beneath it, as it were, appeared this shadow of innate mysticism. In a second it was gone, and she was laughing again. But I, who am accustomed to observe, had caught it, perhaps alone of all that company. 
Moreover, it reminded me of something. What was it? Ah, I knew. A look that sometimes I had seen upon the face of a certain Zulu lady named Mamina, especially at the moment of her wonderful and tragic death. The thought made me shiver a little. I could not tell why, for certainly, I reflected, this high-placed and fortunate English girl had nothing in common with that fate-driven child of storm, whose dark and imperial spirit dwelt in the woman called Mamina. They were as far apart as Zululand is from Essex, yet it was quite sure that both of them had touch with hidden things. Lord Ragnall, looking more like a splendid Van Dyke than ever in his evening dress, stepped forward to greet his fiancée and her mother with a courtly bow, and I turned again to continue my contemplation of the stalwart Judith and the very ugly head of Holofernes. Presently I was aware of a soft voice— a very rich and thrilling voice, asking quite close to me, "'Which is he? Oh, you need not answer, dear. I know him from his description.' "'Yes,' replied Lord Ragnall to Miss Holmes, for it was she. "'You are quite right. I will introduce you to him presently. But, love, whom do you wish to take you in to dinner? I can't, your mother, you know, and as there are no titles here to-night, you may make your choice. Would you like old Dr. Jeffreys, the clergyman?' "'No.' she replied with quiet firmness. I know him. He took me in once before. I wish Mr. Allan Quatermain to take me in. He is interesting, and I want to hear about Africa. Very well, he answered, and he is more interesting than all the rest put together. But, Luna, why are you always thinking and talking about Africa? One might imagine that you were going to live there. So I may one day, she answered dreamily. Who knows where one has lived, or where one will live? And again I saw that mystic look come into her face. I heard no more of that conversation, which it is improbable that any one whose ears had not been sharpened by a lifetime of listening in great silences would have caught at all. To tell the truth, I made myself scarce, slipping off to the other end of the big room in the hope of evading the kind intentions of Miss Holmes. I have a great dislike of being put out of my place— and I felt that among all those local celebrities it was not fitting that I should be selected to take the future bride on an occasion of this sort. But it was of no use, for presently Lord Ragnall hunted me up, bringing the young lady with him. "'Let me introduce you to Miss Holmes, Quatermain,' he said. "'She is anxious that you should take her in to dinner, if you will be so kind. She is interested in—in—' "'Africa?' I suggested." "'In Mr. Quatermain, who, I am told, is one of the greatest hunters in Africa,' she corrected me with a dazzling smile. I bowed, not knowing what to say. Lord Ragnall laughed and vanished, leaving us together. Dinner was announced. Presently we were wending in the centre of a long and glittering procession across the central hall to the banqueting chamber, a splendid room with a roof like a church that was said to have been built in the times of the Plantagenets.' Here Mr. Savage, who evidently had been looking out for her future ladyship, conducted us to our places, which were upon the left of Lord Ragnall, who sat at the head of the broad table with Lady Longden on his right. Then the old clergyman, Dr. Jeffreys, a pompous and rather frousty ecclesiastic, said Grace, for Grace was still in fashion at such feasts in those days, asking heaven to make us truly thankful for the dinner we were about to consume— Certainly there was a great deal to be thankful for in the eating and drinking line, but of all I remember little, 
except a general vision of silver dishes champagne splendour and things i did not want to eat being constantly handed to me what i do remember is miss holmes and nothing but miss holmes the charm of her conversation the light of her beautiful eyes the fragrance of her hair her most flattering interest in my unworthy self to tell the truth we got on like a fire in the winter grass as the zulus say and when that dinner was over the grass was still burning i don't think that lord ragnall quite liked it but fortunately lady longden was a talkative person first she conversed about her cold of the head sneezing at intervals poor soul and being reduced to send for another handkerchief after the entrees then she got off upon business matters to judge from the look of boredom on her host's face i think it must have been of settlements three times i did hear him refer her to the lawyers without avail lastly when he thought he had escaped she embarked upon a quite vigorous argument with dr jeffreys about church matters i gathered that she was low and he was high in which she insisted upon his lordship acting as a referee do try and keep your attention fixed george i heard her say severely to allow it to wander when high spiritual affairs are under discussion sneeze is scarcely reverent could you tell the man to shut that door the draught is dreadful it is quite impossible for you to agree with both of us as you say you do seeing that metaphorically dr jeffreys is at one pole and i am at the other sneeze then i wish i were at the tropic of cancer i heard him mutter with a groan in vain he had to keep his attention fixed on this point for the next three-quarters of an hour so as miss manners was at the other side of me and scroope unhampered by the presence of any prospective mother-in-law was on the other side of her for all practical purposes miss holmes and i were left alone she began by saying i hear you beat sir junius fortescue out shooting to-day and won a lot of money from him which you gave to the cottage hospital i don't like shooting and i don't like betting and it's strange because you don't look like a man who bets that I detest Sir Junius Fortescue, and that is a bond of union between us. I never said I detested him. No, but I am sure you do. Your face changed when I mentioned his name. As it happens, you are right. But, Miss Holmes, I should like you to understand that you were also right when you said I did not look like a betting man, and I told her the story of Van Koop and the two hundred fifty pounds. Ah, she said, when I had finished, i always felt sure that he was a horror and my mother wanted me just because he pretended to be low church but that's a secret then i congratulated her upon her approaching marriage saying what a joyful thing it was now and again to see everything going in real happy story-book fashion beauty male and female united by love high rank wealth troops of friends health of body a lovely and ancient home in a settled land where dangers do not come, at present respect and affection of crowds of dependents, the prospect of a high and useful career of a sort whereof the door is shut to most people, everything in short that human beings who are not actually royalty could desire or deserve. Indeed, after my second glass of champagne, I grew quite eloquent on these and kindred points, being moved thereto by memories of the misery that is the world which forms so great a contrast to the lot of this striking and brilliant pair. She listened to me attentively, and answered, "'Thank you for your kind thoughts and wishes. 
"'But does it not strike you, Mr. Quatermain, "'that there is something ill-omened in such talk? "'I believe that it does, "'that as you finished speaking it occurred to you "'that after all the future is as much veiled from all of us "'as as the picture which hangs behind the curtain "'of rose-coloured silk in Lord Ragnall's study is from you.' "'How do you know of that?' I asked sharply in a low voice, for by the strangest of coincidences, as I concluded my somewhat old-fashioned little speech of compliments, this very reflection had entered my mind, and with it the memory of the veiled picture which Mr. Savage had pointed out to me on the previous morning. "'I can't say, Mr. Quatermain, but I did know it. You were thinking of the picture, were you not?' "'And if I was,' I said, avoiding a direct reply, "'what of it?' though it is hidden from everybody else he has only to draw the curtain and see you supposing he should draw the curtain one day and see nothing mr quatermain then the picture would have been stolen that is all and he would have to search for it till he found it again which doubtless sooner or later he would do yes sooner or later but where perhaps you have lost a picture or two in your time mr quatermain and are better able to answer the question than i am there was silence for a few moments, for this talk of lost pictures brought back memories which choked me. Then she began to speak again, low, quickly, and with suppressed passion, but acting wonderfully all the while. Knowing that eyes were on her, her gestures and the expression of her face were such as might have been those of any young lady of fashion who was talking of everyday affairs, such as dancing or flowers or jewels. She smiled and even laughed occasionally. She played with the golden salt-cellar in front of her, and, upsetting a little of the salt, threw it over her left shoulder, appearing to ask me if I were a victim of that ancient habit, and so on. But all the while she was talking deeply of deep things, such as I should never have thought would pass her mind. This was the substance of what she said, for I cannot set it all down verbatim. After so many years my memory fails me. I am not like other women. Something moves me to tell you so, something very real and powerful, which pushes me as a strong man might. It is odd, because I have never spoken to anyone else like that, not to my mother, for instance, or even to Lord Ragnall. They would neither of them understand, although they would misunderstand differently. My mother would think I ought to see a doctor, and if you knew that doctor, he, and she nodded towards Lord Ragnall, would think that my engagement had upset me, or that I had grown more religious than I ought to be at my age, and been reflecting too much, well, on the end of all things. From a child I have understood that I am a mystery set in the midst of many other mysteries. It all came to me one night when I was about nine years old. I seemed to see the past and the future, although I could grasp neither. Such a long, long past— and such an infinite future. I don't know what I saw, and still see sometimes. It comes in a flash, and is in a flash forgotten. My mind cannot hold it. It is too big for my mind. You might as well try to pack Dr. Jeffreys there into his wine-glass. Only two facts remain written on my heart. The first is that there is trouble ahead of me, curious and unusual trouble, and the second— that permanently, continually, I, or a part of me, have something to do with Africa. 
a country of which I know nothing except from a few very dull books. Also, by the way, this is a new thought, that I have a great deal to do with you. That is why I am so interested in Africa, and you. Tell me about Africa and yourself now, while we have a chance. And she ended rather abruptly, adding in a louder voice, You have lived there all your life, have you not, Mr. Quatermain? "'I rather think your mother would be right about the doctor, I mean,' I said. "'You say that, but you don't believe it. Oh, you are very transparent, Mr. Quatermain, at least to me.' So hurriedly enough, for these subjects seemed to be uncomfortable, even dangerous in a sense, I began to talk of the first thing about Africa that I remembered, namely of the legend of the holy flower that was guarded by a huge ape, of which I had heard from a white man who was supposed to be rather mad, who went by the name of Brother John. Also I told her that there was something in it, as I had with me a specimen of the flower. "'Oh, show it me,' she said. I replied that I feared I could not, as it was locked away in a safe in London, whither I was returning on the morrow. I promised, however, to send her a life-sized water-coloured drawing, of which I had caused several to be made.' She asked me if I were going to look for this flower, and I said that I hoped so, if I could make the necessary arrangements. Next she asked me if there chanced to be any other African guests upon which I had set my mind. I replied that there were several. For instance, I had heard vaguely through Brother John, and indirectly from one or two other sources, of the existence of a certain tribe in east-central Africa—Arabs, or semi-Arabs, who were reported to worship a child that always remained a child. This child, I took it, was a dwarf, but as I was interested in native religious customs, which were infinite in their variety, I should much like to find out the truth of the matter. Talking of Arabs, she broke in, I will tell you a curious story. Once, when I was a little girl, eight or nine years of age, it was just before that kind of awakening of which I have spoken to you, I was playing in Kensington Gardens, for we lived in London at the time, in the charge of my nurse governess. She was talking to some young man who said she was her cousin, and told me to run about with my hoop and not to bother. I drove the hoop across the grass to some elm trees. From behind one of the trees came out two tall men dressed in white robes and turbans, who looked to me like scriptural characters in a picture-book. One was an elderly man with flashing black eyes, hooked nose, and a long grey beard. The other was much younger, but I do not remember him so well. They were both brown in colour, but otherwise almost like white men, not negroes, by any means. My hoop hit the elder man, and I stood still, not knowing what to say. He bowed politely and picked it up, but did not offer to return it to me. They talked together rapidly, and one of them pointed to the moon-shaped birthmark which you see I have upon my neck, for it was hot weather and I was wearing a low-cut frock. It was because of this mark that my father named me Luna. The elder of the two said in broken English, "'What is your name, pretty little girl?' I told him it was Luna Holmes. Then he drew from his robe a box made of scented wood, and, opening it, took out some sweetmeat which looked as if it had been frozen— and gave me a piece that, being very fond of sweet, I put into my mouth. Next he bowled the hoop along the ground into the shadow of the trees. It was evening time, and beginning to grow dark, saying, "'Run, catch it, little girl.' I began to run, but something in the taste of that sweet caused me to drop it from my lips, 
then all grew misty and the next thing i remember was finding myself in the arms of the younger eastern with the nurse and her cousin a stalwart person like a soldier standing in front of us little girl go ill said the elder arab we seek policemen you drop that child answered the cousin doubling his fists then i grew faint again and when i came to myself the two white-robed men had gone all the way home my governess scolded me for accepting sweets from strangers saying that if my parents came to know of it i should be whipped and sent to bed of course i begged her not to tell them and at last she consented do you know i think you are the first to whom i have ever mentioned the matter of which i am sure the governess never breathed a word though after that whenever we walked in the gardens her cousin always came to look after us in the end i think she married him you believe the suite was drugged i asked she nodded there was something very strange in it it was a night or two after i had tasted it that i had what just now i called my awakening and began to think about africa have you ever seen these men again miss holmes no never at this moment i heard lady longden say in a severe voice my dear luna i am sorry to interrupt your absorbing conversation but we are all waiting for you so they were for to my horror i saw that every one was standing up except ourselves miss holmes departed in a hurry while scroope whispered in my ear with a snigger say alan if you carry on like that with his young lady his lordship will be going jealous of you don't be a fool i said sharply but there was something in his remark for as lord ragnall passed on his way to the other end of the table he said in a low voice and with a rather forced smile well quatermain i hope your dinner has not been as dull as mine although your appetite seemed so poor then i reflected that i could not remember having eaten a thing since the first entree so overcome was i that rejecting all scroope's attempts at conversation i sat still drinking port and filling up with dates until not long afterwards we went into the drawing-room where i sat down as far from miss holmes as possible and looked at a book of views of jerusalem while i was thus engaged lord ragnall pitying my lonely condition or being instigated thereto by miss holmes i know not which came up and began to chat with me about african big game shooting also he asked me what was my permanent address in that country i told him durban and in my turn asked him why he wanted to know because miss holmes seems quite crazy about the place and i expect i shall be dragged out there one day he replied quite gloomily it was a prophetic remark at this moment our conversation was interrupted by lady longden who came to bid her future son-in-law good-night she said that she must go to bed and put her feet in mustard and water as her cold was so bad which left me wondering whether she meant to carry out this operation in bed i recommended her to take quinine a suggestion she acknowledged rather inconsequently by remarking in somewhat icy tones that she supposed i sat up all hours in the night in africa i replied that frequently i did waiting for the sun to rise next day for that member of the british aristocracy irritated me thus we parted and i never saw her again she died many years ago poor soul and i suppose is now freezing her former acquaintances in the shades for i cannot imagine that she ever had a friend they talk a great deal about the influences of hereditary nowadays but i don't believe very much in them myself 
who for instance could conceive that persons so utterly different in every way as lady longden and her daughter miss holmes could be mother and child our bodies no doubt we do inherit from our ancestors but not our individualities these come from far away a good many of the guests went at the same time having long distances to drive on that cold frosty night although it was only just ten o'clock for as was usual at that period even in fashionable houses we had dined at seven End of chapter three